Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 126 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another terrific interview episode where we carve away the layers of delicious fact and fiction in the spirits world and then serve them with gravy and cranberry sauce. That's right. This is our Thanksgiving episode and... Think about it. What happens on Thanksgiving, right? The whole damn family gets together. Somebody gets drunk and starts talking politics. And about an hour in, everybody's looking for an escape. And in the cocktail world, nothing says escape like tiki. Our guest this time around is rum wonk and cocktail author Matt Petrick, who joined me to talk about his book, Minimalist Tiki, and a whole bunch of other interesting rum and tiki topics. But before we jump into the interview, let's do what we always do here and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Jet Pilot. This is a classic tiki drink that gets straight to business with three different types of rum, two types of citrus, two sweeteners, and two herbal components. To make the Jet Pilot cocktail, you'll need one ounce of aged Jamaican rum, three quarters of an ounce of gold rum, three quarters of an ounce of overproof Demerara rum, a half ounce of grapefruit juice, a half ounce of lime juice, a half ounce of orgeat, which is a spiced almond syrup, a half ounce of cinnamon syrup, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, one dash of Angostura bitters, and a quarter to a half a bar spoon of Pernod or absinthe. A lot of recipes out there instruct you to add everything to a blender, blitz it for a few seconds, and then pour the drink over crushed ice in your favorite tiki glass. I've personally seen it mixed in all sorts of ways, so I think the important part is get all these ingredients mixed together somehow and then stick the drink in your face. Now, if you back up, and look at this Jet Pilot formulation, I just want to point out that it's one of the more beautiful recipes in the tiki world in terms of symmetry. You've got your two different citrus juices balanced by two types of syrup and two herbal bitter components, and then you have a trinity of different rums that all pull in different directions on the flavor spectrum to achieve that complex, heady balance that truly is the essence of tiki. And if you're flying this Thanksgiving, well, you just better hope that your jet pilot isn't drinking a jet pilot. So now that you've got a tropical project to keep you busy while Uncle Ed's passed out in the recliner with the football game on too loud, let's turn our attention back to the interview. Some of the topics I discuss with Tiki author and rum ambassador Matt Petrick include... How Matt tended a rum hobby while working as a software engineer and then blew that spark of interest into a full-fledged career as a rum author, historian, and consultant. Why intellectual honesty and a thirst for verification set great cocktail writing and scholarship apart from the merely good stuff. What minimalist tiki means, because 
let's face it, when you're looking at a recipe that calls for eight or more ingredients, there's not a whole lot of minimalism going on. Why the fates and fortunes of rum and tiki are so interconnected in the bar world. How Matt used a quantitative approach to laying out the most important tiki ingredients to have at your home bar. Total software engineer move, by the way. The four levels of improvisation in tiki. What it's like to self-publish a book in the age of Amazon and big publisher dominance. What to drink when discussing calculus with Sir Isaac Newton and much, much more. This is an interview that's been in the making since I met Matt this past summer at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans, and I'll be honest, I am thrilled out of my mind that we were able to dig so deep. This is truly a nerdy conversation for all the rum and tiki nuts out there, and just a reminder, if you haven't already, please head on over to MinimalistTiki.com to pick up your copy of Matt's beautifully designed and rigorously researched book. With that... I'll leave you to enjoy this boozy, wide-ranging interview with the cocktail wonk himself, Matt Petrick. Matt, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you just introduce yourself briefly to our listeners and tell them who you are, what you do, and uh, how we came to be talking about minimalist tiki today? Sure. So uh, my name is Matt Petrick, and I'm a now a full-time uh, spirits and cocktail writer, educator, uh, jack-of-all-trades. Um, prior to this, for 30 years prior to this, I was actually a software engineer, software architect. I wrote a couple of books about how, how Microsoft Windows works uh, back in the early 90s. Um, it gave me my exhibited my passion for sort of going beneath the covers and digging down deeper and really understanding things. And so, um, when uh, the cocktail you know bug bit me back in 2007 or so, you know I started making drinks at home. And then at some point, I was driving my wife crazy with with you know telling her everything I had learned, and she said, "You need to you need to start to start telling other people, honey, I love you." But uh, and so in 2013, I started writing a blog uh, called Cocktail Wonk, and it's sort of grown from there. Um, Cocktail Wonk the blog, and then there was the Instagram feed, which is now like 35,000 followers, and and sort of like every year, I'm surprised at like like how much more this has turned into something. And so it was just about a year ago that my wife and I both um, quit our quit our long term careers to go pursue new things. Uh, I being a, I wanted to focus full time on on spirits and cocktails and tiki and things like that, and my wife wanted to go back to grad school for for um, historic preservation. But our very first project after after quitting our jobs was to write you know the book Minimalist Tiki. So so here we are today. So it seems like she's come around then. If she's helping you put together a book, uh, it seems like she's maybe come around a little bit to uh, yeah. taking taking part in the cocktails. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's she's always been, she's she's always been you know totally okay with the cocktails and and you know she knows far more than she she lets on. But uh, you know, I think it was sort of it was a realization of like, wow, you know, this is actually something you know serious and that it's it's actually opening doors for us and things like that. Like. Are the places we've traveled and the experiences we've had have have um, you know been in large part due to to sort of going deep and really just just following my passion for you know the whole world of spirits and and uh, cocktails. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love stories of enthusiasts who uh, find a way to transition into more of a professional, uh, like a professional relationship with uh, the subject that they're enthusiastic about. Because, you know, it, it is somewhat rare in our industry to, to go from a, a longtime enthusiast to somebody who is just all of a sudden in the thick of it. Um, but I do think that makes for a really unique perspective. So I, I, w- I wanted to ask you first, um, yeah. I guess, how you got into rum and specifically how the passion evolved and led you into various tributaries. You know, we, we, we uh, shared some emails back and forth before this interview. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of, you know, let you tell the story of rum through the, through the lens of, you know, British naval history and the, um, the, the West Indies um, trade organization that you're also a part of. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, happy to. So, you know, I think like many people, my my interest in Kiki cocktails and rum, you know, originated with a Jeff Berry book. Um, back in, in 2007, uh, we were renovating our house. We had to move out. And um, but before we moved out, we had decided, like, yeah, we're going to have a little bar in here, like a small little bar where I can make some some Moscow mules and some you know, <clears throat> dark and stormies. And when we moved out of the house, you know, we were living in this tiny apartment and my my wife got me a copy of, of Sip and Safari and, you know, I devoured it. And nothing else to do. I was sitting in the apartment at night and I was and I was dreaming about, you know, once we got back into our house, like this little bar, like I was finally going to be able to to start making these cocktails uh, you know, these tiki drinks, but there was like, you know, what is this Demerara rum? What is Jamaica rum? And, you know, all these things, you know, I go to the grocery store and, you know, I see Bacardi and I see Captain Morgan, like what, you know, what are all these other things? And, and, uh, and it was actually hard to get those things in Washington at the time, Washington state. This was the Seattle where we were living at the time. And it was hard to get these things. So but when we traveled, if we went to California or Florida or wherever, I'd be able to bring them home. And, and I started going, wow, these are incredibly different, you know, and, and, you know, I started getting into like how, why are they different? And which led me into things like, like distillation science and, and things like that, which was sort of appealed to my, my technical side, you know, my, my bachelor's degree was in physics. So, you know, I was just always been curious as like how things actually happen. And then by, um, but, you know, by the time I started writing the blog, I was, you know, super, you know, pretty super interested in rum. And then I had a couple of key, ex, you know, experiences. Uh, one of them <clears throat> I was interviewing, uh, I had done an interview with somebody, the, the person who does denizen rum. And he told me that the rum, that their custom rum blend, you know, is made in Amsterdam by this company called ENA Shear and that they go back in time or that their company history goes back to like 1760s. And I was like, whoa, hold on here. Wait, what? Uh, there was this like this whole sort of like universe that got peeked behind the door, this whole other universe to the rum world that I had no concept of how it existed. You know, you just, you know, you know, you know, there, obviously, you know, there are things like distilleries like oh like appleton rum made of the appleton estate distillery but then well what about all these other rums like there don't seem to be a distillery you know associated with it like how does this all work um and so i had a, a you know a series of experiences like that where i sort of realized there's this 
whole other universe to rum that you know, most people, you know, even enthusiasts don't really know a whole lot about. Um, and, you know, my, my ability to, to, to just get out there and ask questions <laughs> um, was very lucky. You know, I ended up talking with, with some few, few very informative people. And I started writing what I learned and that, you know, that in turn fed the next, you know, the next question, the next article. It just sort of, you know, took off, you know, and, you know, and over the, you know, from around 2013, 2014, 2015, you know, I was in this mode of just like absorbing everything I could about, you know, different styles of rum or whatever. And then sort of the interest in the rum industry itself took over. And, you know, I started getting, you know, like, like people, the distilleries would be like, would contact me and like, hey, we want you to come see the distillery. Sure. Uh, you know, and it, just, it just kept feeding on itself. The more, the more I learned, the more I wrote and the more opportunities presented itself. Uh, and, you know, and my, my stories just kept, kept getting, you know, geekier and geekier and, I started, uh, you know, you know, communicating one on one with with you know distillers like like Alexander Gabriel of of Masson Ferrand of Plantation Rum, or Richard Seal or or other distillers. Like I, I literally started now started to have direct access to information that most people don't have, and I was like like I want to you know I have my own questions. How can I how can I um, share this with you know share what I learned? It's, you know it's like it's not fair for me to find out all these things and not share it and then um so like a couple of tributaries of there um the the thing with the west indies uh, association is called uh the west indies rum and spirits producers association uh they're better known as worspa w-i-r-s-p-a uh worspa is, is an organization that goes back to 1970 or so and it's essentially you can think of them as the the nato of the rum countries and that um, none of them are terribly big in this in the scheme of the global economy uh, so there's a lot of things where they gain gain um, a benefit from working together by sharing information by negotiating you know together you know with the european union or the us or other trading blocks um, that there's essentially this, this organization of like hey there's a lot of commonality in what we do and let's work together um, and earlier this year, um, they reached out to me and said, you know, and basically said, you know, we're, we're, we, we feel like, you know, there's some areas where you could help us, like with some communication about like our mission and things like that. Um, and, you know, I went down and went down to St. Lucia and met their executive board and, you know, you know, a, a complete trip for me. Like, the, you know, that, you know, if you would have told me three years ago, you're going to be sitting, you know, sitting in a in a board meeting with, you know, the CEO of Appleton Rum and the CEO of St. Lucia Distillers and um, the CEO of Mount Gay and all these uh, very high ranking people. And they're all sitting there waiting for me to tell them, you know, my thoughts of things. I would have said, like, what universe is this? Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't. You know, specifically, I'm not employed by them, but I basically, you know, help them out with various things. Uh, you know, basically, almost like a consulting role for them. Um, but that's been very cool. Um, gives me even more insight into how the global rum world works. And then um, the thing with the British rum history. Um, funny, funny story. While I was while I was writing uh, Minimus Tiki, you know, I had a very short deadline to try to get it out the door. Uh, in the middle of that, you know, Alexander Gabriel of Plantation Rum 
uh, emailed me and said, you know, we have a project we'd like you to take on. You know, we'd like to pay you to research um, the the real history of of London Dock Rum and the real history of British Navy Rum. You know, not just what you can find on the internet, but I want you to actually go back and and like find the original source documents and and learn what we can what we can actually learn about this. Like, you know, where was the rum actually made? What happened to it when it got to London? Um, who were the merchants that were buying it? How are they aging it in London? You know, what was the British, the real British Navy rum recipe? <clears throat> and, you know, I, I was, of course, was like fascinated by the subject, but had no time because uh, I was trying to get this tiki book done. But I was fascinated. And so, of course, I said, yes, uh, I'll do this. So I threw even more, more work from the tiki book onto my wife, Carrie. And uh, off we went to London, where I was, you know, found myself browsing through, you know, original source documents from the 1600s and 1700s in the British National Archives and uh, the British Maritime Museum or British Navy Maritime Museum and the West India Dock Museum. Just all sorts of crazy things that, again, you know, three or four years ago would have seemed unfathomable that this, that this is my life now. Um, but everything I do just keeps leading to to the next incredible opportunity. So I'm I'm very happy about it. Wow, that is kind of an incredible series of events. And you know what what it made me think about as you were telling the stories of Worspa and you know this this British naval history research project. It made me think about darkness and light in the in the spirits and cocktail world and. I think it's a tricky and very treacherous place to try and acquire knowledge because, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of parts of the industry that are dedicated to showing us something shiny that looks appealing, but but really what they're they're doing is concealing certain certain practices that they're doing or or certain origins that maybe they're not proud of and and on the other side of things you know there there are these moments of of great brilliance you know when you get to interact one-on-one -on -one with a master distiller i'd had a few of these throughout the course of conducting this podcast of just these moments of, of something about a spirit or or a style of cocktail becoming so incredibly clear uh, just because I have the access to this, you know, uh, a person who's who's just dedicated so much time to it. So, um, you know, I think the story that you tell is is a really optimistic one because obviously you've uh, you you've benefited greatly from you know the the dedication that that you have personally taken on your shoulders to to pursue rum and to pursue tiki in as kind of a scrupulous fashion as you have, uh, but. Man, the whole time I was still thinking like this is still such a perilous journey. There are so many ways that this could turn out that don't result in you sitting in this boardroom with these amazing group of people. Um, so it it really is cool to to step back and look at that and, and see how well it's turned out for you. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you know, I think to a certain extent, this a lot of this comes from. Uh, my sort of, you know, my success, if you will, and, and, you know, hopefully not falling into the dark side, if you will, is that, you know, being in tech for 30 years, 
everything is incredibly rigorous. Like, like, you know, every, every statement somebody makes is, is sort of like assessed by other people and, you know, and not, not necessarily and then trying to be negative, but there's, it's like just always this incredible, like assessing and reassessing and questioning and poking and prodding and, you know, not taking things on face value, but like looking for verification, looking for <clears throat> confirmation. And, um, you know, like, like you mentioned brands, it's like, yeah, they, I think they will, they will sometimes, you know, selectively pick parts of a story that, that, you know, sound great. And they'll tell you that parts of the story. Um, I don't know that they necessarily always conceal things, but they may not tell them to you either. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there's a certain amount of, of intellectual honesty you have to have uh about you know what brands tell you and you know you we take it at, you take it at face value but then you verify and you know for most people that's hard to do it's hard to verify things but when when you have access to source material you can go back and and do your own research and tell and, and basically learn learn a far better more detailed version of the story you know and i give credit to people like uh, david wondrich um, who's an amazing writer, um, you know, a personal writing hero of mine. Um, and the thing, the, the books he wrote, you know, in his research, you know, even the most recent article he did on like the, the history of the, the scorpion cocktail, you're like, that was work, you know, like, you know, going back through the, you know, Hawaiian newspapers and connecting all these dots. You know, I, that's, that's something that's relatively new to me is the ability to do this, but it's, it's sort of fascinating. And it lets lets you lets you you know feel like you have a much better understanding because you've seen the original source material. You you're not just getting a filtered version of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know it's 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 yeah. There you know there there's lightness and there's darkness. And you know from my perspective, you know I think what I have to offer is that I'm not you know unlike a person with a brand. And I and, and to be fair, I love brand people. I'm very good friends with a lot of brand people, but. I'm not trying to sell you anything. Like I don't work for any specific brand. Like my, my vision is to, is to tell the most complete and accurate story of, of rum or whatever, whatever, you know, thing I choose to write about. I want to give you, give you that with an unbiased sort of intellectually honest uh, perspective on it. Wow. Yeah, no, I really love that approach. It's something that really resonates with me. I do want to talk uh, about tiki here, the connection between rum and tiki, what minimalist tiki even means. Uh, right. But I, I I love following you on Instagram. Uh, we met at uh, Latitude 29 briefly at Tales of the Cocktail this year with our friends from Lion Rum. I started following you on Instagram. And, man, before we move on, we have to talk about your trip to Demerara Distillers. Yeah, that that was a that was a real treat for me. Um, that one not actually came about after after uh, my Worspa um, going down and meeting the Worspa people um, and meeting meeting the CEO of of Demerara Distillers. That was that was such an amazing trip. It's one of those canonical rum distilleries um, with so much history behind it. And, um, you know, un unlike a traditional press tour, you know, press trip where there's like five other people or, and, you know, and they have sort of have a preset agenda and, you know, it's like, you know, four hours in a distillery and then we're off to, you know, go do something fun. Like, no, this, they, they wanted to show me everything. And so I, it was, it was two very intensive days, you know, and I, and I got to meet 
people like Sean Caleb and um, who's you know legendary and basically you know the head of the warehouse of the aging warehouse and the head of the distilling plant the head of the of the blending and QA like I met everybody and I got to spend serious time with them and um, we we geeked out in the stills like we did everything and you know and I knew quite a bit going into it but I still came away like learning you know, crazy little facts like the fact that those old stills can only be run for seven days before they accumulate so much scale in them that they basically have to, to tear them apart and clean it all off and start them up again. You know, uh, amazing trip. And um, I, my goal is to be writing that up, hopefully before the end of the year. But yeah, like, is it like, inst- you know, what you mentioned Instagram? And I think, like, I, I'm not consciously chasing followers i just think of instagram as this is my you know my, my boozy journey this is this is what's got my interest right now and if you like it you follow along you know <laughs> this is what's what's got my attention at the moment yeah yeah and uh i i highly recommend that, that folks follow you on instagram what's the handle really quickly uh cocktail wonk all one word like like cocktail and then wonk w-o-n-k uh it's hard to, you know, people will misspell it and not get it it's got cocktail wonk it's like a policy wonk but for cocktails cocktail wonk right right cool so yeah definitely recommend that uh but let's let's move on to tiki here uh, the, yeah. the topic of this book uh that is beautiful and that, that you're, you're promoting one thing that occurs to me is that mm-hmm. there's a connection between rum and tiki in a way that most other spirit and cocktail genre pairing can't even come close to rivaling. If you think of tiki, you think of rum. And if you think of rum cocktails, okay, maybe you think of a daiquiri, but then you think tiki. Uh, So like what, I guess in, in your perspective, what accounts for this like really close like binary star system relationship where they're kind of revolving around each other and their gravities are kind of intersecting in a really weird way i mean i would think you know it's it's a it's a good question it's hard to answer um concisely but i think that the one of the dominant reasons i believe is that Unlike um, other spirits, and, and, and we'll put a disclaimer up front, I adore bourbon, I adore Scotch whiskey, I love cognac. Like, I love all the great spirits. Like, I love them all. There's in no way, you know, dinging any other spirit. But rum has this incredible diversity to it that, you know, if you put, you know, if you put 20 different bourbons together on a table, you know, they're going to be, they're, you know, they're going to have differences, but at no point are you going to ever walk up to one of those bourbons and go like, oh, I really think that that's a, you know, that's a Jamaican rum. Uh, same with cognacs, like, you know, they have, they have envelopes of flavor, if you will. And there's rum, like I can hand you a Jamaican overproof rum and I can hand you a, you know, a 30 year age Demerara rum and they're just worlds different, you know, to the... If you knew, if you had never tasted spirits before, you would think that they're completely different, made in a completely different way. And rum just has this much larger playing field uh, for people to to sort of you know play around with and, and get involved in and start collecting or whatever. And I would say as well, you know that you know again like bourbons, like well you can have different bourbons, but like with tiki, like if you, you know, if you want to make tiki drinks, well you. You need a Jamaican rum. You need a you need a Demerara rum. You need a what in the book they call moderately aged rum. You need um, a, a rum agricole. 
and and so the just the whole genre of tiki cocktails lends itself to multiple multiple rums being used in a cocktail and so you know you start buying you know you know the tiki enthusiast starts buying some rums and make tiki cocktails and it's like you know like well i got a jamaican and i got a you know demerara and you're like then somebody will say, well, this Jamaican's even funkier. And I go, oh, well, hey, well, I need, now I need to try that. And so it, it sort of naturally leads to almost to like a collector mentality of, of like, like I kind of want, I want them all. I want, or at least I want good examples of all the different styles out there. And, you know, again, you don't, if you think that there's, I don't think there's any other sort of cocktail category that's, that's as broad as, as tiki, like they're within the tiki genre, there's, hundreds if not thousands of recipes but you know within you know within the bourbon cocktails there's like there's no sort of canonical list of, of you know like 200 bourbon token cocktails that like anybody could name off the top of their head you know right yeah i mean it, it is of you know the, the tiki world to me kind of resembles you know the, the west indies or the caribbean it it, it seems to be made up of a bunch of little islands or archipelagos that are sort of loosely affiliated and share many things in common, right. but there is that thing about islands. You know, we, we learn this from, you know, Darwin in his research. When mm. stuff is on an island, well, that stuff tends to be different from the stuff that's on, right. you know, another island. You know, yeah. it's just that things evolve differently. There's different types of selective pressures. Oh, well, yeah. That, that that they evolve differently, but they they also bring in influences from each other as well. Right, right. So, um, how did you decide on minimalist tiki as the moniker for for the book, which seems to be about much more than just tiki? Um, but like, how how did this this idea of minimalism yeah. um, help so you to to start crafting it? Yeah. Okay. That's uh. Yeah. So there, it's, it's a good question. I think you know people. Some people have been confused or, or like you know laugh it up like haha. You know tiki is anything but minimalist. And like how dare you call a book minimalist tiki? But um, the way I think of it is is again I have this sort of scientific approach to things. It's very methodical and like when I see some when I see a whole bunch of things you know in some sort of universe and I see a bunch of things. And I don't see the connection. Well, I naturally start trying to group them or understand the relationships between them. And so, at some point about five years ago, I, I sort of realized it's like I want to make this recipe, and I got to go buy these ingredients, and I got to make this recipe, and got all these other ingredients. And oh look, my bar shelf is full of of, of weird one-off ingredients that I haven't used since. And I, you know, I naturally thought there's got to be, you know, some sort of of easier way or some sort of way of understanding like what's what's the important stuff like how do you separate out the the important things and the less important things you know like like gee cherry hearing like it's a great cocktail greeting i love cherry hearing but gee i have a bottle and i haven't used it in a year like maybe it's not you know a critical part of, of the core tiki you know recipe you know nucleus and so i i had this idea of what if we took you know, took a representative, you know, sample set of tiki recipes. Uh, and I think at the time it was 15 or 20. Uh, in the book, it's 30 recipes. And it's like a recipe is like the Mai Tai, the Jet Pilot, Three Dots and a Dash, 
Nevi Grog Saturn, <clears throat> basically a set, a, a representative set of well-known Tiki classics. And then I sat down and I listed out every ingredient, every drink, and I basically put them in columns. And so, like, you know, so, like, there was a lime juice column and a pineapple juice column and an orange, you know, an orange juice column and an orange yacht column and a cinnamon syrup column. And, you know, where things got a little um, tricky, if you will, is, you know, one recipe might have called for, you know, Havana Club 3 rum and another recipe called for, uh, you know, a Bacardi rum or for a, a Rio McCoy 3 rum or something like that. Uh, I had to basically say, you know, if I list out every single specific rum, it's just going to be unmanageable. But I said, you know, but these rums, you know, like you can lump these rums together. That you can say like Appleton and Bunny Musk and Hampton are all a Jamaican rum. So I basically had to create little sort of like categories of rum. But having, but again, having put everything in little columns, like these are like the, here are all the columns relating to juices. Here's all the columns relating to, to um, syrups. Here's all the columns relating to rums. Here's all the columns relating to other liqueurs. It's like I created this effectively a grid. And then if you, if you count out the number of times, like something is in the lime juice column, you're like, oh, lime juice is used in 14 out of these 20 recipes. And pasture fruit syrup is used in nine out of these 20 recipes. These are good things to have. You know, and when you see like something like creme de cassis is used in one of these recipes, it's not quite as essential. Um, and if you see, you know, cherry hearing, then none of these recipes, well, then, okay, you know, it's not part of the core tiki canon, you know. And so it's essentially just some very basic statistics that let let, let me realize, like, like, you know, the core juices are like <clears throat> lime juice, pineapple juice, orange juice. The core, the core um, liqueurs and bitters are things like Angostura bitters, Pernod, um, Falernum, things like that. And essentially, you know, the end goal was to create a, a set of, a, you know, a, like a palette, if you will, of like these are the things that you pretty much should always have on hand at any time. These are the things that are going to allow you to make most of the classic tiki recipes. Um, and, you know, you start to start with the things that are used most often and then add the things that are used a little less often. Um, but the goal, the goal is to not have to, you know, have, have a bar like, like Smuggler's Cove to be able to make great drinks. And so that's, that's sort of what the minimalist is about. It's, it's really not at all about, you know, like two ingredient tiki cocktails. It's about, it's about working within the set of, of ingredients that pretty much pervade most tiki drinks. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it's kind of like a 10-bottle bar approach to yeah. Tiki, which, you know, you're going to have to go beyond 10 bottles inevitably yeah. on, on Tiki. But, yeah, it, it seems like um, that's kind of a useful shopping paradigm for people as well um, right. you know, to be able to say, like, all right, well, <laughs> I can just kind of start my start my journey in the densest column and then work my way out to the less dense columns and, you know, see yeah. what I like in, in the process. Right. Exactly. And that's it. And, there, and this graph, this grid is in the book and this is all, all very early on in the book. It's all explained with the, with 30 recipes, but it's about 
what what are the, the core things you use? And I, I posted a, something on, on Facebook a couple of days ago. I said like 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 minimalist tiki is about working but is about working with the with the core tiki ingredients. It's not about making a simple drink. It's about working with the core tiki ingredients and not barrel aged banana foam. You know, there's, there, <laughs> you know there are recipes you know or like or you know like butterfly tea or butterfly tea. Uh, flour, pine nut infused orgeat. Like if you're if your bar can make that and can use it and make a great tiki drink, you know, Godspeed. I will absolutely come to that bar and I'll absolutely enjoy that drink and I will celebrate that drink. But it's also not something that I'm gonna go tell a home bartender, hey, you should be making this. There are great bartenders out there and there's many of them featured in the book. You know, like Jason Alexander who who doesn't use anything crazy in his ingredients. You know, it's like yeah, he uses a lot, but there's nothing super crazy. There's not you know, none of his recipes, you know, if you walked into a different tiki bar, would you say, Well, we don't have that? You know, it's 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 there there's a sane subset and that's what I wanted to to target the home enthusiast with. It's like you you can do an incredible amount with without crazy crazy ingredients right right and, now, I, and i will say as well that you know the rest of the book you know sort of like that's part one part two is more like you know like maximalist tiki if you will and he's like okay you know if, if if you got through part one and you're really digging this and suddenly you're you know your liquor shelves are growing and you're like now you want to start lighting things on fire and dry ice and and started making your own syrups. Hell yes, go do it. And here's here's sort of what I've learned, and sort of like when tiki starts taking over your life, and when when you when you you know when you have you know your when your home bar is bigger than your kitchen, you know which is my state right now. Uh, that that here's some guidance there. But I wanted to, you know minimalist tiki is a catchy title, and I wanted to get the you know point across of like like. That this is you don't have to do crazy ass stuff to make to make good tiki drinks. Right, right. Well, and I was ju- I was just going to ask about that because it seems like all right, great. But what happens? You know, what happens after people get that those first ten bottles? Because then they're going to start. You know, if if they're anything like you or I, they're going to start sliding down that rabbit hole rather quickly. So it's 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 good, and I feel like it. It, it makes for a well-rounded book, right? To give to give the intro, to give the, right. the necessary preamble, but then also to you know leave room for people to grow into it, you know, later on in the book as as they can start adding on skill sets and adding on um, you know drink styles that that are maybe a bit more esoteric that maybe they need right. to you know get a different weird tiki mug for. Right, right, and I and I like I'm, I'm very proud of the section I wrote on improvisation. I, I came up with like the four levels of improvisation within tiki um, genre of, you know, number one is basically just like, you know, tweaking your recipe to taste. And number two is the second level is like substituting out, you know, like one sort of ingredient for another. And level three is, is, you know, innovating with, you know, creating whole new recipes from, from sort of your existing palate. And then level four is like, we're going to introduce something really crazy. that's never been in tiki before. Uh, like Ancho Reyes chili liqueur, but like, hey, if you can pull it off, great, you know, go do it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I can't claim to say that I, that I've given everybody every last little detail of Maximus Tiki, but I've sort of given them the guidelines of here, you know, sort of here's my journey and here's where I went and here's how I safely light rum on fire and, and things like that. And then, you know, the, 
Uh, part three is, is obviously a very detailed section on rum. So I want people to really understand rum so that they can, you know, make intelligent substitutions. They, you know, when you're looking at a bottle, you're like, oh, um, like, you know, this is, um, my dog is thumping on the floor there. Uh, that they can make intelligent substitutions and things like that. But then the fourth part of the book, which I'm really proud of, is, you know, we got 23 bartenders and bars, you know, great people like, like Kevin Berry of Lost, or I'm sorry, of Three Dots and a Dash and Shelby and Aaron, Aaron Hayes from Lost Lake and, and, uh, Jason Alexander and Oriole Elias and, and, um, Lost Lake, the bar itself and Cane Rum Bar and Rum Bar. We got all these great people who are out there doing great things today. They all contributed recipes that are, you know, fairly within the minimalist tiki ethos of like, Gee, a home bartender could actually go go make these drinks. I wanted to give people like a you know like a you know beyond just the classics, you know the Mai Tai Jet Pilot. I want here's some new modern recipes that are accessible uh, to you. And so in the end, there's like over a hundred of these recipes um, that people can play with. Wow. And so you self-published this book, right? So so there's this whole process. <clears throat> Of not not just the research, not just the time that you spent kind of uh, refining the concept and figuring out a way to communicate that clearly to your readers, but there was also the process of literally assembling the book because this is a full color book. You had to do the you know orchestrate the recipe development with these bartenders, get it all organized, get the photos taken. Um, what was the process of assembling this book like from from that perspective? So, yeah, uh, again, great question. Um, you know, it's funny when we, you know, we, you know, our first thought was, yeah, we'll, we'll find a publisher for it. And, you know, we probably could have, but we, we kind of, you know, in talking with people, we realized that a, you know, publishing, you know, if you, if you go with the publisher, the end, the authors don't actually make that much money. Like, you know, you may, you may get five or $10,000, unless your book becomes a runaway bestseller, you may make five or $10,000 and that's kind of it. And, you know, and then, you know, you hear the stories of, you know, publishers like they, well, they don't want to use the good paper or they don't, you know, they, they insist that you, you know, use this cover photo or whatever. And we're like, no, we have a vision. Like we know what we want. And we, you know, we want something that's going to stand proudly on the bookshelf next to, you know, the others, other sort of well-known Tiki books. And, you know, we had a series of fortunate conversations with people about, you know, how to make self-public and how self-publishing this could work. Um, and we were also incredibly fortunate in that our core team of three people uh, were like perfectly suited for the job. You know, basically my, my job was content creator and 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 um, reaching out to bartenders and coordinating like, hey, do you want to be involved and can we get their recipes? That was my job. Uh, my wife, Carrie, who's the other co-author on the book, uh, she was essentially the project manager. She edited it. Um, she has, she, before she was in interior design, she was a book editor for a major publisher. So she had a lot of skills in that area. She knows what a book is supposed to look like. Um, she's a book fanatic herself. So she had a very strong vision. Um, she's also an incredibly good product manager or project manager. She, she, she's been doing this for, you know, for almost as long as I was doing software. And so, uh, she was the project manager editor, um, basically corralled me into doing, <laughs> getting what I needed needed to get done on time um, and she also happened to you know, being an interior design she had great um, knowledge of the particular software we used which is InDesign from Adobe uh, she knew how to use that you know at a fairly decent level but then our third team member was our, was our very good friend Lauren Blass and Lauren 
Warren is a professional graphic artist designer. She works for a major um, software company. Uh, she knows her stuff inside and out. And the three of us basically over the course of, of six months, you know, did what most publishers would take 18 months to do. Um, so there was, there was a, you know, a, a whole lot of frantic work at the end, but at the end we had, you know, the perfect team with the exact set of skills we needed, you know, and we were also very lucky that like, like a lot of the photographs we used were from um, my Instagram feed <clears throat> and they, they sort of, the more of the, see, you know, this is, this is achievable at home, that kind of stuff. And then, but then we wanted like, you know, a great cover photo and some great images, you know, when we introduced rums, things like that. We worked with a, um, a great photographer out of Seattle called Justin Alford. But when we worked with him, you know, we went in knowing this is exactly what we want. These are the shots we need. Uh, and we did it all in about three hours. Uh, same story with the, with the, in the indexer, you know, it's, it's not sexy or glamorous. But we wanted a a, a full index that every ingredient was indexed uh, by recipe. So I could say like, oh, I just bought, you know, I just bought, you know, pineapple pineapple juice. And what recipes can I make with it? You go to the index. There's your list. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of little details uh, that we wanted. But again, having having a team of, of just the right people and doing nothing else but focusing on this book, um, we were able to to pull it off in a, in a fairly short time, you know, and in the end, you know, we, we sent off a giant uh, file to um, the, the publisher or not publisher, basically the printer. Uh, we worked with, with a print broker. <clears throat> we sent off a giant file and a very large check. You know, this is all our money up front. Like, you know, we, we had, a, you know, we, the end, like we got a price per book quote and we had to decide how many copies we wanted to print. And, and we had basically paid for all those copies up front. You know, in the end, it was all a huge risk, uh, but we had a strong vision of what we wanted it to be, and uh, we pulled it off. And even now, like, we still do every part of it. Like, every every order for a book we get, we it's me who puts it into an envelope, me who puts it into a box, me who tapes the box shut, prints a label, takes it to the post office. We, we basically, other than running the printing press, we did everything ourselves, and so we have great control over the quality and we actually make you know more money than if we you know had just handed it off to a printer and you know waited for royalty checks to arrive right right and and i tend to really uh i tend to really appreciate people who in-house stuff um it, we live in a, a world i think where you know there's dozens of online services dedicated to hey you don't want to do this well there's you know somebody in india who will do it for you for you know X right. amount of dollars or, or, or what have you, right? Um, you know, you, you don't want to make dinner? Well, there's Uber Eats. Um, exactly. Uh, but but there's, there's something that gives me a, a sense of trust. And uh, it, it's almost like a, a verification in and of itself when, when you, you know, you can walk up to a product, you can touch it, you can turn it over in your hands, and it can look like something that, comes out of the big publishing houses and yet you know that it was in-house like there's a there's a very specific type of excitement that i get from that prospect 
Yeah. Well, wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It, it, like you said, we, we, we had a vision. We, you know, we're, they said we're both, both my wife and I were like professionals at the top of our fields. And, you know, we, we were responsible for designing things and, and leading teams to, you know, produce quality products. So we knew what we, what we wanted. And we, you know, we, we didn't let up until we, we had what we wanted. And, um, and this was also, you know, I'll add, this was also a sort of a proof of concept for, you know, th- is this a viable business model? <clears throat> Cause I have another book that I'm, that I want to write, uh, that I hope to start that writing soon. But this book was like, well, if we do this and, and we, we screw it up, well, at least we, we haven't, we haven't wasted that much money. But, you know, in the end, it's like, yes, this this is viable. Like, you can actually make money doing this and put out a good product. And so, you know, we hope to do more. Right, right. Well, that's that's excellent. Um, is there is there any other kind of features of the book that you want to um, kind of explain to our listeners, uh, things that they might find useful, or uh, just anything else about the book that, that you want to make sure our listeners hear? The, the key points, I think, are that, you know, A, the, the first chapter, first parts are, you know, defining minimalist tiki and giving you a, a, an understanding of, of what ingredients you need and basically the categories. Like you, once, once you start understanding that all tiki drinks are some combination of, of juices, uh, juices, syrups, liqueurs and rums or maybe some other base beer. Once you start thinking of them in that, in a sort of, you know, breakdown, like they suddenly get a much easier to wrap your head around a new recipe or around improvising a new recipe. Um, I think that the section on rum, which is probably the least discussed out there, but I I really wanted a very detailed section on rum and production because A, I just love, love rum, but B, I wanted people to, you know, when, when you're like holding up two bottles on a shelf and you say, which one should I buy? You know, is this a Jamaican rum or not? And like, which one should I buy for a cocktail? You have that level of understanding, you know, to make an intelligent choice. Um, and then I think the last section, again, the, the debate about a hundred innovative recipes from, from modern bartenders, I think is, is, you know, gives people a lot of, a lot of ways, entrances into the book and ways of, you know, finding what works for them. Yeah, and, and the cool thing about having a hundred recipes is, you know, like a one of the affordances of a book is that, well, it can pick it up, you can read it from beginning to end, and then you can put it down. And in, in theory, you have acquired all of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the cool thing about having a hundred recipes at the end is that you can also come back to it. You can pick the book up over and over again, and it continues to yield something new and different, you know, even on those return trips through it, which I, which I think is nice because it's not the case with all books. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we wanted to, to give you a fair amount of information and, in, in, you know, in different layers so that, like you said, you can, you can come back to it as you learn more, you come back to it and maybe you didn't pick up something the first time, but second time through, you're like, oh, now I kind of get what you're talking about there. Right. Well, um, we're going to make sure that we have links to um, uh, minimalisttiki.com uh, where you can check out uh, check out the book and, and place your orders um, uh, over on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. So um, for those of you listening out there, uh, that's where you can go to uh, head over to Matt's site, check out the book. 
Um, but before we get into lightning round questions here, I wanted to just quickly see if there were any emerging trends we should be on the lookout for either in the rum world or the tiki world, because obviously you are very well traveled, well connected, and sort of, you know, if, if anyone has their finger on the pulse here, you know, I would, I would hope that it would be you. So is there anything that you're seeing coming down the road that the, uh, the rest of us might want to prick up our ears and pay attention to? Um, that's, that's, that's a hard one to answer. I think that on, on Tiki front, it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you start seeing, uh, you know, new bars popping up left and right. There's Tiki bar here and a Tiki bar there. And you start wondering, like, you know, are people just chasing a trend or a fad? Like, like, will it, you know, can it, can it survive? You want, you know, for somebody like me, I want Tiki to survive. I want it to, you know, the good bars to stay around in business. And I do sort of worry that a lot of people are just, you know, chasing this trend and that, and that they don't necessarily, you know, practice craft tiki per se, and that it kind of gets a bad name, like, you know, like it did in the 70s. So you're, you're kind of trying to avoid um, sort of like the history of like where tiki sort of went into the dark ages. You know, you, you, you know, I'd like to see a nice sustainable growth in tiki instead of like an explosion and then a, and then a, you know, everybody walking away from it. Um, you know, I think... I think it is, you know, it's interesting to see that sort of the craft techniques sort of permeating more and more into it. And again, not that not that every recipe needs, you know, barrel aged banana foam, but I do love to see like when somebody has a new ingredient, like a new Akavit or a or entirely new spirit altogether, um, that that like, hey, let's let's see if we can do something interesting with it. Like let's bring some new flavors into it and expand the, the palette you know i say that the modern tiki palette of ingredients is is far different from what it was in the in the you know the golden era of tiki i mean golden era of tiki you pretty much never as far as i'm aware of uh saw like these unaged jamaican overproof rums the, the rum fires of the world and now they're used all over so i think you know there's there's some good things there and i think i would like to see more ingredients sort of come in and become sort of a standard part of the palette in terms of rum, I think you know we're sort of we're in the midst of a of a rum renaissance, if you will, in that um, the good brands are starting getting getting more attention. More bars are stocking better rums. We're starting to finally get an awareness that there's more out there than you know the the you know Bacardi's, Captain Morgan's, uh, that kind of stuff, Kraken's rums. That they're starting to there are good rums out there, and I mean just to. I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, you could only really buy one Jamaican rum in the U.S., which was essentially Appleton, and it was not particularly funky. It was like one rum from one distillery, and now we you can buy rums from every producer in Jamaica or in the U.S. Now, <clears throat> so I see. I think we're we're seeing um, rum in the in the wide, much wider variety of rums um, now available around the world, and. We're seeing a lot of interest in, in even sort of like the less explored parts of rum, like like uh, Haitian Claren or um, Grog from from um, Cabo Verde. Um, we're like just just the insane rums that you know. Again, even five years ago, you would have been crazy if you thought you could sell it. Now people are snapping it off the shelves. 
Um, so I think that that's a trend that's good. You know, I, I would like to, you know, hope that it doesn't become as insane as like bourbon is where, you know, Pappy 23 is, you know, thousands of dollars a bottle. Um, but I think in general, the movement towards, you know, rum being considered, you know, an equal to bourbon or single malt scotch whiskey is, is a very good thing. Right, right. Uh, have you noticed anything in the, I guess, uh, protective classification space like AOCs or DOCs for the rum world because, you know, one of the things that we um, in the industry often say about rum is that it's, you know, of course, it's one of the most diverse categories. It is also one of the least or at least least consistent, consistently um, regulated uh, categories. Uh, do you see any pushes for um, protected uh, uh, designations? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. That actually is uh, something I'm very passionate about. Something I've written about uh, extensively. In fact, I just wrote a, a rather lengthy article the other day about that. Um, it's it's common for people to say, you know, writers in particular to say, "Well, rum has no rules." It's like, well, no, rum has plenty of rules. Uh, go to Cuba; they have rules. Go to Martinique; they have rules. Go to go to you know, Guyana; they have rules. Go to Jamaica; they have rules. Uh, Barbados is working on um, their own um, uh, geographical indication. There's plenty of rules, but what most people don't realize is that like you can make a rule and it, and it, it, it works in your country, but it doesn't just automatically work in every other country. So the fa the fact the fact that, for example, in America we recognize Scotch whiskey as a protected category is entirely the result of, of you know, American and, and American Scotland agreeing like, hey, this makes sense. <clears throat> like, we'll, we'll recognize your Scotch whiskey in exchange for you recognizing <clears throat> like American bourbon and that, you know, you're not going to let, you know, a Mexican whiskey be sold as, sold as bourbon in England. So there there are there are higher level sort of geopolitics and trade trade discussions that go involved into getting your GI or your rules uh, recognized somewhere else. And rum is in the unfortunate position of most of the rum producing countries. Uh, again, like Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana, they're relatively small on the world stage. And so, they absolutely could be protected, uh, you know, in the United States or in the EU, but they really, you know, you take the steps to get them protected. It does, it does, doesn't just come for free, <clears throat> but, you know, I think the first step is just getting these rules in place that realistically, uh, the regulation, the first earliest rum regulation of this form I'm aware of is, is only from 1996, which is the original Martinique AOC. And it's only since then that, like, we've seen, you know, the Cuban, the Cuban, uh, uh, I think it's the DOP, uh, Martinique AOC, um, Jamaica was in 2016, I believe, uh, Barbados is still in flight, uh, Guyana was 2017, I believe. <clears throat> there are these rules out there, but, but they're all fa fairly recent and they all, and they have a lot more to go before, before, you know, you can hope that anybody in the EU or in the US is going to say, wait a minute, that's not really Jamaican rum. It was made in Panama, for example. Right, right. Well, it seems like progress is being made. So that's, that's, um, I don't know if it's a good thing. It seems to be a neutral thing. People are regulating things. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. I guess we'll see, you know, how it gets handled. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the thing to notice here is that obviously, as you noted, these, these places, are low leverage 
places, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think one way to, you know, f- for home consumers listening there, one way to give these places more leverage is to uh, ask for their spirits more often. Yeah, for um, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and another th- another thing, again, they can do is work collectively work together. Like if you get a, a you know enough countries in the Caribbean uh, to work together to to actually say like, hey, we're going to go to the U.S. and we're going to say, we want you to recognize all seven of our GIs, for example, and an exchange will recognize, you know, bourbon or what, whatever you know, negotiated deal you make up is. Um, they'll have more leverage doing that. And again, there are organizations like, like uh, Caricom or Worspa, who I who I mentioned earlier, who can help coordinate these sort of things. Nice. So, like, there's, there's more power in working to collectively <clears throat> for rum, for Caribbean rum, uh, than it is for each individual country trying to go at their own. For sure, for sure. Well, Matt, this has been fascinating. Uh, do you have a minute to jump into some lightning round questions? Let's do it. What's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've been recently obsessed with? Oh, my sort of my stock answer to that would be a mai tai, and I do love a proper, properly made 1944 mai tai. <clears throat> but sometimes I, you know, a good, a great, a well done jet pilot is also amazing. Uh, I, you know, the answer could change from day to day, but but you know, it, I tend towards the towards the the tropical drinks, the tropical tiki drinks with with, you know, that where the rums really stand out. Is the Mai Tai like the old-fashioned of the tiki world? Um, it is. It is sort of the... I mean, I would say that the, the, the old-fashioned tiki world would be more like the daiquiri. It's not really a tiki drink, you know, sort of like proto-tiki, if you will. Right. But it's sort of like, you know, if you think about it, an old-fashioned is a great way to evaluate a spirit because, like, the spirit really punches through. Uh, it's the same thing in a daiquiri. Um, I'd say the, the Mai Tai is, is, though, is definitely, like, the, the king of the tiki drinks. It's sort of like um, the high art, if you will. Um, and it's, it's actually a relatively simple recipe compared to so many other ones. But it just sort of like stands alone as like this is like the, the pinnacle, and, and very few people disagree that it's not sort of like you know if you could have you know if you were going to put tea drink onto a spaceship and send it out into space to to represent tiki to another culture, it would probably be a mai tai. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Uh, I would probably be a Jamaican rum. I uh, just I the particular hogo funk the flavors of Jamaican rum are just they're. they're like, you know, if you've never experienced it before, and I've done this with people, you just like, you give them their first taste of an actual funky Jamaican rum, and it's like, whoa, oh my God, I had no idea. You know, it's like, I it's love it. It's just, it, it's, it's, and there are different styles of Jamaican funk depending on which rum you drink, but there's all have this common, there's like, like primal thing in the back of your head. It's like, this is what rum is. Now I get it. Yeah. I love Jamaican rum. I think it's one of my favorite styles, if not my favorite style. Uh, as you were saying that, <laughs> I've got a really cool story. It's really quick. I just want to share it with yeah. you on air. Uh, I was in Baltimore uh, a couple weekends ago. My father-in-law used to be in the Coast Guard, so he's big into boats. And so he trailered his boat up to Baltimore Harbor, and my wife and I uh, went and we, we stayed overnight on the, on this boat. And we got to cruise around the Baltimore Harbor, and of course... That is the location of the Domino's Sugar Factory. Oh, yeah. And 
I was I, I was like, you know, I, I, I drive through all the time and you know, if you drive through at night you see the big domino sign lit up. It's like a it's like a part of the city skyline. And we were on the boat, so we had the chance to go like, you know, really, really close to it. And I was I I, I wondered I was like, man, I, I really hope it just smells like molasses or like smells like sugar. Right. And uh yeah, can confirm, in fact, that if you if you drive the boat close enough to the Domino Sugar Factory, it kind of smells a bit like a rum distiller. Obviously, they're not making rum, but it's got that right. like molasses scent emanating off it into the Baltimore Harbor. Right, and there's actually there's actually a Domino's uh, factory down here as well. I think it's one of the biggest in the world. Um, <clears throat> and it's actually it's, it's interesting. I've started doing a, a little research on this. I just, I become a, a sugar nerd as well. Like you can't really understand rum history without understanding sugar history. And, and you realize that um, in the early days, for the most part, and less so now, but essentially the sugar was only partially processed in the Caribbean. Like they basically would do the boiling it off, collect the, the raw sugar, which you know today we might call brown sugar, um, but they would basically ship that very just very basically processed sugar off to somewhere else like England or America, where then the sugar factories here would do like the subsequent refining, basically clean it up, make you know remove more of the molasses, basically turn it into white, white table sugar. Um, so it's, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a, this difference between a sugar factory like you're talking about. Versus versus like, you know, what you see in the Caribbean where they're literally crushing cane uh, to make cane juice and then creating molasses and sugar from that. So. Right, exactly, exactly. And there was a giant tanker pulled up beside it and we were all speculating. We're like, oh, well, well I wonder what was on that tanker. Was it yeah. molasses? Yeah. Was it like, you know, so uh, it doesn't relate to your Jamaican rum answer, but for some reason that smell, no. that, that really no. distinctive smell reminded yeah. me of that. No. Yeah, the, the Caribbean smells are amazing, and and so even even when they're awful, you're like, but I know what what this is going to become, so you're okay with it. Right, right. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Oh my, uh, I kind of would give you two answers. I mean, you know, if you if you said like, who would you most like to meet in the world? You know, I would love to, you know, go back and meet, uh, like, Isaac Newton, for example. Uh, just, just again, it's my physics background. <clears throat> but basically, just, like, like he was so pivotal to sort of, like, the world changing, you know, with the calculus and, you know, and all of the theories. I would love to sort of go show him to, you basically show him, like, here's what your, what your brain and what you came up with. Here's how the world has changed as a result. You know, and I, of course, would love to, you know, drink a daiquiri with him while, while we showed him all these things. Um, but then I guess the other answer would be I would love to, to go back um, and probably have a cocktail with, with Don Beach just because, I said we we have this, this sort of tiki revival movement now, and people like Jeff Berry have done an amazing job of like recreating it and going back and finding original sources. But we're still at a certain level. We're hypothesizing about things, and we you know we like we think it was like this, whatever. I would love to go back you know, and sit with Don Beach and you know drink his you know his original zombie. You know, and then maybe I'd go next door and have a have a real forty four mai tai with with uh, Victor Bergeron. Yeah, yeah, you get to maybe see how uh what is it uh Don's mix 
Yeah, exactly. Just to, to to really experience, you know, like I said, we we have an idea of what the ingredients were, but things change. Like the taste of lime changes, syrups may have changed. Like the rums we have now are not necessarily the rums we have them. I would love to to actually, you know, and I'll tell I'll tell you a really quick story as well, unrelated. But you know, I I recently got to drink, um, I got to taste uh, the Harewood House rum, which was distilled in 1780. Uh, which is an amazing experience, and, but what I when I wrote about it, I said, you know, it's not, you know, I was incredibly lucky and it's an amazing experience, and it's not so much because, because oh, it's the best rum in the world, or because it's old, it's better. It was probably pretty, you know, everyday rum when it was made, but it's this little time capsule. It's this for a brief few moments. When when you're tasting it, you're like, okay, you you get to go back in time and you get to actually see what it actually was like, and not just what you think it might be like or what they're making similar in the modern era. So, you know, I said we we talk about the past, but but we still don't actually get to go experience the true past, except in little moments like like that. Yeah, so, I, I think that's why you know the brandy houses call their you know, their historical repositories, the paradis, you know, it's almost like you are literally walking into the afterlife and communicating with the ancestors who made this stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so getting into the advicey stuff now, are there any books besides yours about rum or tiki that have been particularly influential or enjoyable to you? I know you mentioned uh, Jeff Barry's uh, Safari book. Uh, any others? Yeah, I mean, I think all of all of Jeff Barry's books and all, and as you know, the especially like Potions of Caribbean is great as well. Um, I think he he did a tenth anniversary Sip and Safari book as well. I mean, yeah, I love Jeff's writing. Jeff Jeff is a is a great historian, and um, Ditto for Martin, the Spongers Cove book is great, and that I. You know, you know, it was sort of a daunting task. I'm like, who am I to, you know, come out with my own tiki book and, you know, and, and say like, I have something to say. You know, when when you know the Smuggler's Cove book is out already, um, I think we pulled it off. Uh, but like I said those are those are great resources. And you know, in the introduction in my book, I actually say like, you know, I think of, you know, people think of Jeff and Martin as these like, you know, amazing tiki bartenders. And it's like I personally think of them as more like great historians who sort of who through their work have, have have sort of captured this this core of tiki before it sort of you know vanished before the people died off or whatever they've captured it and are sort of spreading that word <clears throat> to um to the modern world um in terms of rum books um I, you know i like fred minnick's book uh i was a you know disclaimer i was i you know helped Fred, I was sort of a technical editor, a reviewer on, on Fred Minnick's Rum Curious book. Um, actually, a lot of the, it's some of the older books, which are really interesting. I think there's a great one from 1982. I think it's called Rum Yesterday and Today, which is not terribly well written, but just its snapshot of the rum industry at that moment in time uh, is, is really great. Um, I tend to you know, these days I tend to get a lot of my rum, my rum information from, from like original sources and not so much by, by reading other books. And it's not to say that, that there aren't great books out there. I'm just like, 
I'm not constantly referring back to, you know, any particular rum book um, or any particular tiki book, you know, beyond uh, the ones I've mentioned. And I said, and like, and I'm good friends with the other authors, like, you know, Shannon Musfer. I think her book is great. You know, it, it's, you know, I, I tend to be, uh, to focus, sort of focus more on research and less on just reading, which seems kind of strange, but that's how, that's how my brain works. Right, right. Well, I mean, think about it this way. The, the spirits and cocktail industry is a sensory industry and, and reading is a very kind of, um, you know, you might call it a, a mono stream type way mm -hmm. of interacting with information. Whereas if, you know, you know, if you're if you're doing more of the hands on research, you're going to be getting a, a, a better rounded, more stereo view of, of what you're actually pursuing. So right, right. I don't think that's a yeah. bad thing at all. Yeah, and I, you know, for for example, you know, once you start getting into research, you know, historical research, you realize newspapers are great sources, and like, well, it turns out there are multiple online, you know, newspaper archives, and like, once you get used to working with them, you're like, there's an amazing variety of information out there that, you know, like, pull up interesting stories left and right, and just like, it's out there, you just gotta, gotta, you know, pay the, pay the price of admission, but then the universe opens up for you. Right, right. Well, we'll link to uh, the books uh, and publications that you referenced over on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com <clears throat> forward slash podcast. Yeah. And... Oh, I, have one more, I have one more I'll tell you real quick. As yes. A, like as a website, a, a great REM, REM website. Um, I particularly like uh, The Lone Caner, uh, my friend Lance. He, he, he writes very, very eloquently about REM and has a great, great perspective on it. So. Cool. Yep. So we'll add that there. So, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, no. Love, love electronic resources as well. Um, so uh, just to wrap up, uh, you know, we, we talked early on about this, you know, kind of 10 bottle bar approach to, um, you know, building your tiki, you know, using or building, building your bar for tiki cocktails using the most common ingredients, uh, yeah. which I think is, is such, such great advice, such, such a practical approach. It should really be the only approach for home bartenders you yeah, know, looking to get into this. But besides that, uh, you know, is there any advice you have for folks who, who want to start getting more into rum or tiki? Um, yeah, I would say, I mean, for, for rum in particular, is it's, there's a bunch of great bottles out there for like 30 or $40. So I've written articles, other people have written articles, <clears throat> but like literally, it's it's inexpensive enough to where you can start exploring rum, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, you can get a pretty wide swath of what's out there and, you know, and find out for yourself, um, you know, what's what's good. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to spend two hundred dollars or five hundred dollars to get an amazing bottle. There, there are great values out there, you know, in part because rum hasn't become like bourbon. Um, so, yeah, buy things, explore things, talk with people, uh, use the online forums, you know, like Facebook. Facebook has a bunch of groups where, you know, related to rum. They have a bunch of groups related to tiki. Um, dive in there, you know, and, you know, stand your ground. Sometimes sometimes they get, you know, people get you know upset with each other or they, you know, they become very opinionated. But, you know, don't let that stop you. Get in there, ask questions, ask questions, use the online forums. Um, but uh trust your own nose and your own palate and and uh just like explore it's not super expensive to to buy some great rums it's not super expensive to to buy some limes and some you know and a pineapple and things like that and start making your own tricky drinks just like like get it get in there and do it and don't worry about necessarily you know having to be perfect the first time like we all learn i'm still learning techniques uh today just sort of like do it and practice it and ask questions and and leverage the enthusiasts around you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matt, how can people best uh, a find find and purchase the book, and b digitally connect with you uh, any any way you want, whether that's email, social media, whatever. Yeah. So um, I try to be pretty consistent in my branding. Uh, for me, for me personally, in the work, unrelated, you know, sort of orthogonal to the book, uh, it's cocktail wonk. You know, all one word. You know, word cocktail and then wonk. W O N K. Cocktail wonk. And so that's Instagram. That's Twitter. Uh, Cocktailwonk.com is my is my website. Um, my email is cocktailwonk at gmail.com. And then for things related to the book, it's minimalisttiki.com. It's all one word. It's minimalisttiki.com. And there's there's also a minimalisttiki Instagram account, for example. And uh, this is also just for fun. If you're if you're a true rum nerd, you want you just want to see all the weird, interesting bottles that I've come across. Uh, I also have one called Rum Wonk. It's like cocktail wonk, but Rum Wonk, uh, which is also on Instagram. Um, there's also Cocktail Wonk Facebook uh, group or page, if you will. So basically, if you search for Cocktail Wonk on Google, you're going to find pretty much everything I, I have. Awesome. Yeah. And I literally just followed Rum Wonk on Instagram right now. So I'm, I'm excited you. for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Matt, man, this has been fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm really you. grateful that we were able to meet at Tales of the Cocktail. I think that speaks uh, greatly to the uh, kind of the delight and the and the delicious density of uh, enthusiasm that, that surrounds that event. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's people like you that make that event uh, special, you know, that give it sort of that, that, uh, that gravity that, that makes people like me want to keep coming back and learning. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank um, you for having me. yeah, hopefully at some point we can uh, maybe do a, an in-person uh, podcast and yeah, uh, talk about great. some more rum stuff. I would I would love to do that. I, I'm very appreciative of uh, giving a little little platform here, and and these are great questions. I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you. And for everybody listening, uh, show notes page modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Please pick up your copy of Minimalist Tiki. Uh, it makes a great holiday gift. And it does. Uh, if my if my wife has made it this far through the podcast, then I think she knows uh, what to get for me. So <laughs> until next time, uh, I'm Modern Barkhart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Barkhart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And... 
keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, a ton of tiki and rum wisdom courtesy of the cocktail wonk Matt Petrick, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.